Hello and welcome to the Pinnacle Podcast, brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the online bookmaker that offers you the best odds, the highest limits and a unique winner's welcome policy. Today I'm joined by Matt. Matt is an actuary who applies his risk assessment skills to sports betting and often shares his insight under the wonderful Twitter handle, at plus EV analytics. Welcome to the Pinnacle Podcast, Matt. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you for joining us. So before we kind of this this podcast is going to be about your job and and betting and and everything from there and before we discuss your job in kind of any great detail can you tell us briefly about what you do now and perhaps a little bit of what came before that uh great sure so so i'm an actuary and and i guess nothing really came before that Uh, i I went to school for for actuarial science and came right into the profession right out of uh, out of university and uh in, in my job uh, what I do is I come up with a, a pricing for insurance, which is kind of a cool little niche because it combines the technical mathematics of probability with a deep understanding of the dynamics of markets because you're not pricing in a vacuum. You're pricing in competition with other insurance companies in the in the marketplace. And uh, I always get a kick out of when you, you retweet that article from a couple of years ago from Pinnacle about the, the top professions that are best suited for a, for a career in betting and actuaries at the top of the list. And, and um, you know, you can see from, from my brief description how these skills are, uh, are transferable and how they come in handy. So I'm sure we'll get more into that as the discussion proceeds. And you mentioned there about kind of universities. So for anyone that's interested in, in following the career path and becoming an actuary, apart from actuarial science and stuff like that, what kind of skills or, or fields of study are required? Uh, so there, there are a lot of schools that offer a degree in actuarial science, but that is not the only way to get into the profession. I've worked with actuaries who have degrees in business, in mathematics, um, even in hard sciences like physics. Um, really, the, the, the qualification to get into the profession is a series of exams that are maybe a little bit tougher than they need to be. Um, but if someone has the aptitude and, and the uh, motivation and the study skills to, to get through the exams, um, it's actually quite an interesting and rewarding career. And so the, the other thing we'll talk about today is, is betting. And so kind of where did your interest in betting stem from then? always been a part of me. Even when I was a little kid, uh, occasionally my, my parents would buy me a $2 scratch-off ticket at the convenience store, and I, and I love those things. Um, I, I've always been a sports fan as well, and a, and a Toronto sports fan. That's where I grew up. That's where I live, and uh, at the risk of dating myself, I was at Game 6 of the 1993 World Series when Joe Carter hit that walk-off home run against the Phillies, and that was, uh, that was one of the, the greater moments of my childhood. Um, obviously, it's a it's a great uh, summer in Toronto to be a sports fan with the Raptors celebrating their their recent NBA championship. Um, but I've I've always been into gambling. I've always been into sports. So it's a bit of a a, a good match. And and uh, your your listeners may not know this, but in Canada where I live, sports betting is is legal and has been legal since the early 90s. Um, with a caveat, and that is there's a a weird quirk in the law that that says parlays are are allowed, but single-game bets are are not. So you have these kind of quasi-sports books run by the provincial governments here in Canada that only offer parlays, 
and the VIG on these things is outrageously high to the point where a lot of serious bettors don't even bother with them. Um, but they do offer some some bets, especially some prop bets that uh, were challenging to be to, to model, but were kind of right in my wheelhouse of, of of what I can do. And you know, there there are not as many opportunities out there in in these types of games as there used to be. There are people who who came around ten years before I got started, and they actually made millions at this. Um, the opportunities are, are are kind of fewer and and farther between right now. But it uh, it certainly got me started into gambling into sports betting and into sports betting analytics and i guess whether it's kind of betting comes from from being a sports fan or, or trying to make money or just doing it for fun a lot of people also say there's that an enjoyment of trying to kind of predict the unknown or the challenge of making more accurate predictions than the market and is that is that kind of part of the allure of what you do for a job and maybe why you bet as well uh, absolutely is you know, that, like like you say being able to um I, I guess to, to say I can predict the future is putting it kind of tritely, but but to be able to um, come up with with probabilities of things that might happen in the future more accurately than uh, the competition, the market, the books, whomever, is, is something that that really appeals to me both in my career and in my hobby. Okay, so let's kind of let's move on to your your job in a in a little bit more detail. And I mean the, the similarities between actuarial science and, and betting. It's very clear. You kind of talked earlier about a lot to do with risk and stuff like that. And I mean, it's as you said, the profession is is very difficult to get into. It requires a lot of intelligence and a lot of hard work. And I mean, kind of hopefully your little kind of intro at the beginning there gave people insight into to what it is you actually do but can you tell us more a bit maybe about the the day-to-day life of an actuary uh, I, I can now there, there are different types of actuaries working in a whole bunch of different fields of, of, of work um, some work in the insurance industry some work in the consulting space some do life insurance some do property and liability insurance some do pricing of insurance some do more on the on the financial reporting side so it's a it's a really broad spectrum of, of different uh, jobs within the actuarial space but really the common thread is that they are using data to make decisions usually in the insurance space um, in in the face of uncertain outcomes so an insurance policy is really just a, a bet kind of in disguise where, where you're, you're taking money and you're paying out an amount if some uncertain outcome happens. And that's really the, the, the key source of all the commonalities between, uh, between insurance and, and gambling, between being an actuary and being a bookmaker. I mean, the, the, the sort of real-world context is very different in terms of the, the social need for insurance versus uh, sports betting is more of a recreational pastime. But in terms of the fundamental mechanics and mathematics of how they work, they are very, very similar. So when was the when was the crossover between you getting those kind of scratch cards and kind of betting for fun before it got to the point where you realized that what I'm actually doing for a job, I could I could use this to benefit myself in the betting market as well? Yeah, so there's actually a, a specific point in, in my life where, where that kind of turned for me in my head. And this was, I want to say about 10 years ago, where, um, like I said, there, there is this Canadian sports lottery and they, they take parlays. And I had been playing it 
um, really just for fun. I would throw down $10 here, $20 there. Um, until one day, there was a bet that I tried to make. And what you do is you go to the either a gas station or a, a convenience store and you fill out your little parlay card and you hand it to the, the cashier and they run it through their terminal. Um, and when I, when I gave it to the cashier and he ran it through his terminal, um, he, he kind of looked at me like something was happening that he didn't really understand. And he turned the terminal screen to me and it said um, that the bet had been rejected because the liability limit on that particular combination had been exceeded. And that was really a light bulb that went off in my head because here you have, in this case, the government of Ontario, which is just a massive economic entity saying that they wouldn't take my action on a $20 parlay that was probably paying out something like 80 or $90 um, because they couldn't stomach the liability. Um, you know, to, to me, the, the only way they would do that is if that was a plus EV proposition. So um, this particular bet was a, was a hockey uh, parlay uh, on, on, a, on a prop that's no longer offered around uh, which player on which team would score uh, more goals and assists than, than the player on the other team. So I went home that day and I started doing some research and I started building my own model for, for how to model these things out using uh, a theory uh, called uh, Poisson process or Poisson distribution that is uh, a standard part of the actuarial curriculum. And I think you, you guys may have actually even had some articles about it uh, in, in your uh, betting resources archives. Uh, it's, it's a pretty common tool for, for modeling uh, sports outcomes. And it's something that I was familiar with from, from my education. And I said, hey, I can apply this. And that was really the genesis of, of the first sports betting model that I ever built. And the rest is history. So you kind of, you, you've established that model, the Poisson and your, I'm guessing, kind of attacking strength and defense strength and stuff like that to, to distribute the probable outcomes. Is it, are you then going with that back to the gas station that, that couldn't take your bet originally, or are you looking at other avenues to bet? Um, so, so in this particular product, there, there is only one avenue. So it's, a, it's, it's the gas stations. They're all networked together. So whether I go, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to one gas station or the convenience store down the street, I'm, I'm betting into the same pool. And if my bet gets rejected at one place, it would get rejected at all of them. Um, but what this, this model allowed me to do was to wake up at, at 7 a.m., run the numbers for that day's uh, combinations and the ones that ended up being a positive expected value, I, I could hit the gas station in the morning and I could play them before anybody else was because I, I'm assuming that the reason my bet got rejected is because there were other sharp players in the market who kind of knew the same things that, that I did because this model I built, I mean, it was fairly complex, but it wasn't something that, that other people couldn't realize. And, and I, I, there are other people out there doing this, whether they had, they had the same level of mathematical rigor as I did or whether they were just doing it off the top of their head. Um, either way, there was sort of competition in this space for who could get money down before they shut off that combination. And uh, I, I now had the ability to price this thing as soon as the lines came out, which was first thing in the morning. Um, so I, I could get to these things more quickly. It's interesting there because there's kind of some similarities and also some differences to, to some of the struggles people have with online betting in the sense of as soon as the bookmaker kind of 
realizes that you basically know what you're doing you'll you'll struggle to get a bet down but in your case it was kind of first person to the punch gets the reward for sure and th- these things are, are built on systems that they're built on uh, lottery systems so the same the same system you use to play a 649 ticket or a weekly lottery draw ticket um, it's the same systems that are handling these so these these systems don't come with the ability to change odds in real time during the day like uh, like like pinnacle would for example so if uh, something gets bet too much they have no recourse other than to to take it off the board or to shut down betting on on either one game or one combination um, so and, and when they decide to do that it's, it's game over until until the next day so so it, it is similar in that you have a pool of sharp betters who are all kind of competing to, to be the first in. Um, I guess the only difference is, is, is the the bookmaker's response to that. You guys can just move the lines and take more action. But in these systems, I'm assuming due to, to limitations of the technology, they, they can't do that. So they'll just pull it off the board. So there's, there's one example there of kind of something you said was, was actually on your curriculum in, in Poisson Distribution and how you've applied that to betting. I'd be interested to know, is there kind of a flip side to that? And does betting almost have an impact on what you do for work? Absolutely. So, so th- there's no doubt that my career has helped me in, in my hobby. Um, the, the Poisson Distribution and that hockey model is just one example. But what I would say even more strongly is that my hobby has helped me in my career. So to most people in my field of work, things like risk, probabilities, markets, these are these are abstract concepts, they're abstract objects that they read about in a textbook where I interact with these things intimately on a daily basis. So you can you can learn anything you want from a textbook, but there's no substitute for real world experience in, in any domain, uh, especially in, in, in this one. So I have a natural advantage over other actuaries working in my space that, that, that this this sort of thing called risk, uh, I, I really know it and w- work with it more closely than than they do. So, so I would encourage anyone who's coming up in the actuarial field or really any of the applied mathematical fields to, to take up gambling. And, and I'm not saying become professional better and, and, and bet for high stakes. Even if you're betting for for pennies, it doesn't really matter. The stakes aren't the point. The point is to interact with this thing called risk in a bit of a different context that, than you would in in your in your career, and that will give you a much deeper understanding of of what risk is, what probabilities are, what markets are. Yeah. Pinnacle's trading director has kind of t- spoken a lot about the ability to, to think probabilistically and, and how Pinnacle traders, they often come from a gaming background because they have that ability to, to kind of assess situations and calcul- calculate probability in an instant. Is that, is that kind of part of your skill set, that very quick thinking to translate um, data or figures into probability or is it more you have to take time to ensure those calculations are as accurate as they have to be? It's a little of both. I mean there, there is there is some quick thinking to it in that if you do something over and over again, it's the, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours theory, if you do something over and over again enough times it kind of becomes second nature to you. Um, there, there There is coming up with a quick 
rough back-of-the-envelope estimate, and there is sitting down and working out the numbers and getting uh, something accurate to the fifth decimal place, and there's a time and place for each, um, and I think they're, they're, they're both important. And I guess with Pinnacle, the, the benefit of that perhaps leaning more towards the back-of-the-envelope approach is you've got the market to, to instantly guide you on your decision just how right or wrong it might have been. Is that the same in the insurance market? It is the same in the insurance market, but it's it's kind of opposite. So, so um, my favorite author is a guy named Nassim Taleb. I think uh, your, your authors have written about some of his stuff in the in the past. And, and one of his books called Anti Fragile. He he really goes deep into the concept of of fragility and, and adverse selection. And, and my job. I find extremely stressful sometimes because it's fragile, because I'm vulnerable to, to this phenomenon known as adverse selection. And what I mean by that is if I'm coming up with a price for a hundred different types of insurance based on a probabilistic assessment of the likelihood and amount of claims that we might pay out in the future on those hundred different types of insurance, and I nail it on 99 of them, and I get it wrong on one of them, the market will find the one and it will exploit it. So 99% accuracy rate is not going to be good enough. You have to be near perfect, and that's something that, that really I find um, stressful about my job is that constant pressure to be perfect or, or near perfect. Now, the flip side of that is, is my hobby, my betting hobby, is, is uh, what Taleb would call anti-fragile, where I can actually benefit from the fragility of others. So Pinnacle, as a bookmaker, can set lines on 100 different sporting events, and I can look at 99 of them and say, yep, those lines are, are bang on, and I, I can choose not to bet those lines, but I can see one out of 100 where I think the line is wrong, and if, and if I'm correct in that assessment, you know, I, I can exploit the one and pass on the 99. So, so really, the, 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 the conclusion of all this is, is that the fragility that I have to endure in, in my job is kind of offset by the anti-fragility that, that I enjoy uh, at the expense of bookmakers, unfortunately, um, in, in, in my hobby because I, I am, I am the, the, the selected against in my career and I am the selector against, if you will. Uh, when when I'm in the betting space. Yes, there's, a, there's clearly a lot of kind of similarities between the two and the job that you do kind of can quite obviously kind of help you find an edge in the market and, and take advantage of that. I'd, I'd, I'd like to know if, do you think the work that you do, the work that you do can almost limit what you want to do with betting in a way? Is there is there kind of enough time in the day to develop the models? Can you Can you bet where you want because of work? Um, yes and no. Uh, of course, there's only so many hours in the day, and, and you know, between my work and, and my family, I'm, I'm fortunate to have two young children, which are, are is, is, is fantastic. But they, uh, there are a lot of time and energy uh, to, to go into that as well. So there's only so many hours left in the day for for betting, um, and, and, and you really do do the best you can with, with those hours that that you have. Does does it? Would I have more opportunities if I did this full time? Of course I would. Um, and in my past, I have done some modeling for a horse racing syndicate, and I would just build the models in my spare time, and it did well for a few years. 
But after about three or so years of, of doing this, what I found was that I just couldn't keep up with the competition. The, the other people who were doing horse racing modeling were improving their models at a faster rate than I could improve mine because they had teams of analysts who were working full-time on this, and I was just one person working on it you know, one or two hours a day. Um, so the natural question would, would, would be, you know, why don't I just quit my job and, and, and bet full time? And um, believe me, there are days when I consider it, especially when I'm not having the greatest day at work, uh, you know, with, with uh, company politics or um, inability to get things done or the other, the other normal things that plague typical office life. And there are times when I say, hey, I should just give it up and go bet full time. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I do enjoy my job, 99 days out of 100. It does pay fairly well. So the opportunity cost for me of leaving my job to, to become a full-time better is, is much higher than, let's say, if I was uh, a cashier at, at Walmart uh, faced with the same decision. Um, another criteria that I ask myself sometimes is if I was to take a year off, uh, bet full-time, and then either not do well or not enjoy it and want to come back into the, the sort of traditional workforce, the insurance industry and the actuarial profession are, are fairly conservative-minded, and I'm not sure how well it would go over to, to have that on my resume as, you know, took a, took a year off to become a full-time sports better. Um, and there's really no guarantee that I would be welcomed back into the industry or into the profession. So um, it's, it's a bit of a, a risk there. So between the opportunity cost of giving up the, the, the job I already have and, and the risk of maybe or maybe not being able to ever come back to it, uh, I'm just not at the point in my life right now where, where I, I would consider betting for anything more than a fun hobby. And it's easy to kind of think of betting as, as so many people do and look at it through those rose-tinted glasses, the, the stresses that you said that come along with work let's not kid ourselves, they're, they're just as, as prevalent in betting full-time anyway. They, they sure are, but at least you get to be your own boss. Okay, let's, let's kind of take a, a bit of a deeper dive into to your actual approach to betting. You, you spoke a little bit earlier about uh, Poisson in hockey. Is there any kind of more information or examples potentially that you could give us where you've you've taken that mindset of thinking about risk and probability and, and transferred it into to betting activity? Uh, so I can give you another example. And, and so um, one of the techniques that's taught um, fairly well, I would say, as part of the actuarial education curriculum is something that actuaries call credibility theory, which is how to take in a set of observed data and, and, and sort of sort it out into what is signal and what is noise and use that assessment to figure out um, what kind of decisions you should make on a forward-looking basis. So I, I know I, I explained that rather abstractly, so I'll give you a little more of a com concrete example. Um, so how much should your premium go up after you make a claim? So that answer would depend on the extent to which the claim is evidence that you are a bad risk as opposed to just random bad luck. So if you're a bad risk, that influences my assessment 
of your likelihood of making a claim next year. If it's bad luck, it doesn't really impact my assessment of, of anything. So it's this whole idea of trying to separate signal from noise, uh, separate known unknowns from unknown unknowns. This is really an area that, that fascinates me, and it, it really is the basis of, of my article that recently got published on Pinnacle uh, towards a theory of everything. It's generated some, some great discussion on Twitter. I've had some good feedback, um, and, I, and I love this kind of field of study so much because it, it really starts to toe the border between mathematics and, and philosophy, and that border it is uh, what's known as epistemology, the philosophy of knowledge. Uh, a lot of the more pure mathematical sciences make the assumption that we know everything there is to know about how the world works, and we make calculations that follow from that. But in the real world, you, you really don't know what you don't know. All, all you have is the observed universe, which is constantly feeding you information that you can use to learn and refine your understanding uh, of how you think the world works. So if that sounds to your listeners more philosophical than, than mathematical, I would say good, um, because this work really, really approaches that border. And you really, you can even tell from, from some of the, the feedback that I've had on Twitter is, is there are some people who are really good at the pure mathematics side of this, but are really unfamiliar with this sort of philosophical side of, well, what if we don't know everything about everything? You know, how, how, how can observing a stream of observations from a random sequence of events help you to infer what that, what we call the generator in the article, what that looks like? So it, it really gets into the kind of weird and wonderful um, area of, of, of the philosophy of knowledge that that um, is probably unfamiliar to a lot of the, the pure mathematical thinkers, but I think can be a really useful tool in any serious betters toolbox. And that kind of that approach does that impact kind of what you find yourself betting on? Is it some people may often say like oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna attack baseball, I'm gonna build a model around baseball and kind of find the value there, or are you kind of led by your approach first and what that finds it finds and you bet on that? I would say a little both. So I, I, I've, this whole idea around epistemology and, and not knowing what we don't know, I've, I've kind of developed that more recently where I've been betting for, for kind of way before I started thinking that way. So my background in betting, I'm, I'm mostly a prop better. I'm mostly a derivatives guy. And, and the main reason for that is I have a healthy respect for markets and, and arguably even too healthy respect for markets. So if you're looking at a, an NFL game and you know one team is favored by six and a half points according to a market that's very liquid and has a lot of sharp money in it, I just say to myself, well, well, who am I to disagree with what the market is saying? I'm just one one person. The market is just this huge, massive thing, and I, I don't think I know better than the market. Um, even though maybe I could if I put the effort into it. I've never really tried. What I do instead is I say, okay, well, if I take the market number as a given, what inferences can I can I draw from that? What can I derive from that? What can I what can I conclude about maybe some other markets, whether it's halves, whether it's props, whether it's regular season win totals, whether it's uh, you know, futures, whatever it is. 
how can I take that knowledge of, of what I believe to be a very efficient market and, and transform it and apply it to other markets that are perhaps not as liquid? So, so um, I, I am by no means an originator, and I, and I don't aspire to be. I'm a, I'm a deriver, if that makes sense. So, so I take I take the markets that I uh, that I I know are good, and I say, okay. Based on this, um, what can I say about about other markets? And then I guess, kind of, without delving into to green lumber fallacy and stuff like that, is is knowledge of the sports themselves, like how they work or their their nuanced mechanics. Do you kind of attribute any value to to that? Is that necessary? I attribute some value to it, and and yeah, the green lumber fallacy is is uh, is a great uh, there's a great article that you guys published on that. And I by no means believe that domain knowledge alone will allow you to beat a market. But where I really believe domain knowledge can come in handy is when you're looking at a data set and trying to interpret what it means. Um, So as you build a model, you have to make all kinds of assumptions and choices about you know what type of distribution you use or you know what kind of values you cap or what kind of outliers you throw out or or what kind of things you group together and, and really a model is just a data set plus a collection of all these assumptions and i think this is where domain knowledge can come in handy it, is it can it can set you on the right track in terms of making those assumptions in a well thought out way there i imagine are a lot of bad models out there where the modelers just had a data set knew nothing about the underlying sport or or business or real whatever their real world thing is they're trying to model and just use the data on its own and and came up with some some conclusions that are not only are they counterintuitive but the modeler may not have even realized they're counterintuitive because they don't have that knowledge base and and so I, I think that that knowledge of the sport is is helpful in all of those steps that are required to construct a really good model. But um, of course, the green lumber fallacy is a real thing, and you're you're never going to replace a model um, or or a data set with just being an expert in any particular sport. Yeah, it's interesting that we kind of talk about models. We've had uh, we had Rufus Peabody on and. And Matt from Data Golf, and they kind of echoed very similar messages in that there seems to be a, a trend developing in the betting market of almost this this black box approach to modeling where people chuck a load of stuff in, it spits something out, and you don't really know what's happening. All you know is what your your output is and the fact that you're maybe generating positive results to start with, but that's that's actually a very dangerous approach. Sure is. I'm I'm very skeptical both in my career and in my hobby uh, of whether you call it machine learning, artificial intelligence, data mining, um, a lot of these things are heralded as, as kind of the next big thing. And even even at my, at my job, I get calls from all kinds of people who are selling um, machine learning software. And, and a lot of times I'll take their calls and know what they have to say. And, and I'll just think to myself, well, all they're doing is overfitting their data. This is not going to work in the real world. And I think the same kind of things are happening in the, in the sports world as well. So you've got to be very careful in how you structure your model 
Uh, I, I am not at all a fan of so-called black box models where you don't really even know what's going into it, what assumptions are being made, how it's working. It's just like, okay, well, the model works, trust me. Um, that to me is a recipe for disaster because not only will you be a loser, you will be a loser who thinks he's a winner. And that's the most dangerous kind of loser to be because it will cause you to have a sense of false confidence. It will cause you to overbet your bankroll. It will cause you to think you're the world's greatest gambler. And, and these things almost always go up in flames. And I'm kind of, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes and the the process you go through this betting. So you, you build you build your models. You you kind of quantify your your inputs and everything that goes into it and stuff like that. And it's are we literally kind of saying you run your model, get your results, and then off you go down to the to the gas station or wherever it may be on a on a daily basis and and place those bets. Uh, pretty much, and that was more true back a few years ago than it is now. Like I said, the the gas station. Um, the, the number of plus EV bets available at the gas station has, has shrunk dramatically um, as the people who are reading these books have, have kind of woken up to to how they were being taken advantage of by uh, by advantage players. So there's not nearly as many opportunities as, as there used to be, which is causing me to, to branch out into other areas. So I'm I'm trying to beat so-called real markets now for the first time. I've, I've done some work on... Uh, hockey first period totals with uh, some mixed success. Uh, I am starting to look at NFL regular season totals. Uh, I am building an in-play tennis model that uh, is, is kind of in, in uh, I guess what I would call beta testing mode right now. I haven't actually placed any bets with it, but uh, you know the testing, the testing is working out well, but that's, uh, that always seems to happen until you start putting the money down. So I'm, I'm proceeding cautiously. But the, the same types of, of models, uh, especially tennis, I love tennis because it, it is at its core a very simple process where you have two players and there's really, um, there, there are points where, where player A is serving and there are points where player B is serving. And it really is just a, a repeated observation of those two random processes over and over again throughout the match. So you can observe a match and learn a lot about what those underlying generators look like. And, and then once you have your assessment of what those generators look like, you can then project it forward um, to, to, to figure out what the rest of the match might look like. There, there, is, there is a lot of mathematical simplicity to a tennis match that is not there in something like a football game or a baseball game because there's just a lot more variables going on. So I, I've picked tennis on purpose as kind of my first foray into seriously trying to beat a, a real market as opposed to these, uh, you know, these gas station parlays. And uh, it's still too early to tell, but hopefully uh, we'll get some good results. And are you kind of backtesting using past data and then do you develop into kind of small stakes and testing that way yeah unfortunately the the, uh, the tennis model i'm building is an in-play tennis model and uh, I've, I've really found it difficult uh, to to get historical data sets of live in-play odds and, and a lot of places are um, reluctant to give them to me for good reason because i would just take them and use them against their their books um, but really what it means is I cannot backtest my in-play tennis model as well as I'd like to. Um, so you go through a couple of stages. You say, okay, well, I can run, I can, I can run my model back through 
five years of historical matches, and I can kind of pause at each point in the match and say, okay, what would the win probability of player A have been at that point in time, accumulated over five years, and say, okay, you know, for the total of all points in all matches where I said the probability was between 85 and 86 percent, how what proportion of those times did that player actually win? And if it's between 85 and 86 percent, it's a good sign, but there's still no market to compare to. So the next stage, and this is really where I'm at now, is, is so-called ghost betting, where I actually run my model live through a match as it's progressing and, and pretend to bet at actual live lines and kind of take some take some logs and, and add up how I would have done. Um, and that's, that's uh, I guess, kind of the last step. If that works well, then, then you start betting you know, small stakes and, and you gradually move up from there as you get more comfortable with the process of betting and especially live in play tennis is there's a lot of information coming in very quickly. So there's a, there's a process aspect to it. Can you, can you see what happened in the point, recalculate your model and get your bets in before the next point is played. So there's some, there's some logistical um, considerations you have to, you have to go through. But on top of that, as you, bet you are getting back information that can help you reassess how good your model is. And that's, again, that's the kind of thing that I've described in my article is how you can actually modify your Kelly criterion percentage in real time as feedback comes in from the real world, from the results um, that will help persuade you that your model is better or worse than you thought at the start. I feel like you read read my mind there because I was just about to say I've, we have a very kind of clear understanding of of how you approach betting and and what to bet on, and it feels the the logical place to go to next is how much you should be betting and kind of whether you know what you're doing is is right or wrong. So in terms of staking methods, obviously there's there's quite a few out there. There's basic kind of flat stakes. Martingale, Fibonacci have their their very well known kind of pitfalls, and and you just touched upon their Kelly criterion, which is probably the most popular, but also the one that that throws up the most debate. So can you just kind of talk us through maybe your your thoughts on Kelly and the and the work you've done after analysing it in in some great detail? Yeah. So the attraction of of the Kelly criterion is that it's fairly simple mathematically and it's a fairly elegant solution to what's really a complex problem in terms of what amount should you bet to optimize your long-term rate of bankroll growth and and I've had actually two articles published uh, on on Pinnacle's betting resources article uh, or on petting on Pinnacle's betting resources site uh, the first one was uh, I think a year or two back on on some uh, more complex applications of the Kelly criterion. So what if there are multiple games that you want to bet at the same time, or what if you have existing exposure on one side that you want to partially hedge? Um, things like that that the simplified form of the Kelly criterion don't really help you with, but you can actually get a more um, a, a more detailed version of the Kelly criterion that can answer questions like this. And then my more recent article about, um, well, it's about a lot of things, full Kelly versus fractional Kelly. And, you know, when you might want to use fractional Kelly, 
the, the biggest debate in in, uh, in gambling Twitter relative to the Kelly criterion is what's better, full Kelly or or partial Kelly, and there there are advantages and disadvantages to each. Um, the, the the biggest challenge with full Kelly is that it was built for what I call artificial generators in 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 the article. Uh, I believe it was first applied by uh, Ed Thorpe in uh, card counting for blackjack. And, and blackjack is something where you know precisely what your probability of success is at any given moment in any given hand um, because the sort of rules of the game are known and spelled out and, and fully understood. In a complex domain like sports betting, you never really know what that generator looks like. It's a natural generator. Um, you can model it out, you can estimate it pretty accurately if you have a good model, but you never really know for sure. And, and so for that reason, I would not advocate betting full Kelly uh, for sports betting. Well, I would in something like blackjack. Um, but what you can do, as I illustrate in the article, is start with a partial Kelly, say a quarter Kelly or a half Kelly, um, as a reflection of the uncertainty uh, of, of really how accurate your model is. And then after, you, after you've made you know, one bet, five bets, 100 bets, 1,000 bets, there is actually – there are mathematical ways to use Bayes' theorem to update your assessment of how good your model is and translate that into what your Kelly fraction should be. So maybe you'll start with a half Kelly. You'll make 500 bets. You'll have good results. And the math will tell you, okay, well, now you should graduate up to 0.7 or 0.8 Kelly. So really what happens is um, your – your bet size increases and decreases as your bankroll grows and shrinks, which is a natural property of the Kelly criterion. But your your bet size also grows and shrinks as a function of how confident you are in your assessment of your own edge. So it layers that, that kind of second level of, of feedback into the Kelly criterion um, to supplement that one level of feedback that's already there where your bankroll grows and shrinks and your bet size grows and shrinks along with it. So I guess there's, there's pretty clear evidence there. You were talking about your epistemology and, and taking that approach to unknowns. It doesn't apply just to, to what you should be betting on, but, but how much you should be betting. Uh, absolutely. I'll, at least, at least I've, I've made a, uh, an attempt to make that case in the article, and I, I certainly believe that, but like a lot of things in, in philosophy, it's an open question with, with no clear answer. So uh, I, uh, I'm open to, to any thoughts if people want to debate me, argue with me. Uh, they won't be the first people to do that, and uh, you know, I'm happy to, to engage with anybody on Twitter as long as they keep it, uh, keep it somewhat uh, – what's the opposite of trolling? somewhat professional i'm uh, i'm happy to engage i think you've just put a big target on your back for that i haven't put it there it's already there so i mean the you we talked about or you said kind of gambling twitter and this this big debate and staking methods Kelly criterion, full Kelly, partial Kelly, fractional, whatever you want to call it, is is one of the big ones. The other one that that certainly springs to my mind is the the question of measuring success. And obviously, with so much variance involved in betting, 
people think or believe that simple measures of, of profit and loss can be quite dangerous and people tend to use closing line value as a as a kind of measure of success and whether it's looking at your model or whatever it might be and that obviously has its advantages and disadvantages so you kind of said earlier you you respect the market maybe too much are you a, are you a believer in efficient market hypothesis Oh boy, Ben! You told me I had a target on my back, and then you you bring up closing line value. So uh, <laughs> this this is like uh, this is like a, a magnet for for uh, I guess what I would politely term people with strong opinions in in gambling Twitter. Um, I do believe in efficient markets as a general theory. Obviously, some markets are are more efficient than others. Um, I believe in closing line value as a measure of success. I don't believe in closing line value as the only measure of success. The, the thing with closing line value is you have to assume that the market is inefficient enough at the time you're making your bet that you can actually find value, but then the market becomes efficient enough after you make your bet that you can you can use the closing line as a, as a measure of, of value. And I think that that hypothesis it is somewhat true, um, especially in a lot of the bigger markets. But it, it does have to, to to rely on the idea that the market is finding the same information, the same edges, the same angles that you are, and just the market is betting them at a later point in time. And if that's what's happening, then then great, more power to you. You know, CLV is a perfectly fine measure of, of your success. But if you have the kind of, of model or the kind of betting strategy where if you identify an advantage play, you might be the only person in the market who has that theory or that information or that idea, well, there's really no reason why the market should catch up to you, which I realize is a bit of a, of a contradiction of the efficient market hypothesis. But it's certainly a possibility, and I'm sure there are people out there who have angles that the market isn't following. It doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. Um, what it means is they're not going to get any closing line value, but they, it's still very plausible that they might have positive expected value. Unfortunately, the only way to really know or measure that is through results. And of course, results are noisy. You need a large sample size. All, 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 of, the, all of the reasons why people prefer to use closing line value instead of actual results, because closing line value is less random, is less noisy. You, you, can, um, you can learn a lot more with a smaller sample from closing line value than you can from results. I totally believe all of that, but um, there, there are circumstances and there are types of angles and types of bets that one might make that won't necessarily result in plot positive closing line value, but could conceivably result in positive expected value and, and, and winning over the long run. Um, there's just there's just no easy way to measure it. Yeah, I mean, there's probably quite a simple caveat that should go along with that, which I it feels like a lot of people don't really kind of take on board. And that's, I mean, people tend to talk about Pinnacle's closing line as, as the measure, given the kind of how efficient it is. But even Marco Bloom, our, our director of trading, has been quite open and said those lines, they're efficient kind of on an average basis. It's not every single line is efficient. Um, 
I mean, yeah, market efficiency is uh, depends on how you look at it. Because yeah, they can be efficient on average, and that just means there's no systematic bias in the lines. But to say that every line is perfectly efficient really means that that nobody over the long run can win money betting ever. So um, I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between those two things. And, and it really is. It's kind of one of those things where the market is efficient until somebody finds an advantage and in finding an advantage you, you, you prove that it's not um, it's kind of like the black swan theory where where you can say all swans are, are white and the only way to disprove that is by finding a black swan but there really is no way to prove it like there's no way to prove a negative so you know how would you prove that pinnacles markets are efficient the only way to do that is to say that that you know it's impossible to 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 win money over the long run betting at Pinnacle and, and I'm sure that's false, but but you know you can prove it false just by finding examples of them, but there's really no way to prove it true. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but but the point of all this is you know, the efficient market hypothesis that there are ways to disprove it, but there are really very few or no ways to prove it, no matter how strongly you believe it. When you first answered the question, you suggested that, that closing line value is one potential measure of success. So I'd be interested to know from your perspective, kind of what is the another option? Um, there are really only two I can think of, and one is closing line value and the other is actual results. Um, you know, maybe there are others out there, and I'm just not thinking deeply enough about it. But those are the two obvious ones, and, and of course, closing line value has pros and cons, and actual results have pros and cons. That the biggest con with actual results is, is again that variance, that random noise, that is going to be very much present, especially in a small sample of, of actual results. So of course, re results are the are the most um, most effective way to measure the success of, of, a, of a model or a better or a tipster or anybody, but the, the number of results you would need to, to qualify someone as good or bad with a, with a relatively high degree of confidence, it, it may take hundreds or even thousands of bets to ever get there. So all you can do is just have degrees of confidence where, okay, this person has, has returned, you know, 3% return on investment over, 200 bets, you know, am, am I 99% confident that, that they're plus EV? Probably not. Am I 60% confident they're plus EV? Yeah, I probably am. So it, 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 you sort of leave the realm of black and white and you start operating in shades of gray or shades of probability or shades of confidence. And again, um, at the risk of, of having another shameless plug in there for, for Bayes' theorem and Bayesian inference, this is a natural fit. Um, because you have a, a hypothesis out there that person X or model Y is, 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 has positive expected value. You can't model it directly. You can, you, you can measure it indirectly, but that will only give you a degree of confidence in a, in a proposition. It will never give you definitive proof that the answer is yes, this person knows what they're doing or no, they don't. Um, so it really is a natural fit for Bayes' theorem and Bayesian analysis. Let's try and kind of, for the benefit of our listeners, let's let's put together all this insight that, that you've shared and, and try and kind of help them out. And, I mean, people will bet for, for many different reasons that, and they're often kind of categorised as, as square or sharp and stuff like that. I'd like to know from, from your perspective, kind of, what do those terms mean, square and sharp? 
Well, square and sharp are very general kind of vague terms. So if I had to define them, um, I'll, I'll define them in an equally vague way to sort of fight fire with fire. I, I, I would say uh, a square is someone who believes they have positive expected value in their bets but doesn't actually have it. And a sharp is someone who believes they have positive expected value in their bets and does actually have it. And that, that, that really um, translates nicely into the discussion we just had over how do you know if someone has positive expected value. You can measure it with closing line value in some circumstances but not in others. You can measure it with actual results. If your sample size is large enough, you can have degrees of confidence that someone is a, is a sharp versus a square. Um, but that, that, that's how I characterize it in general, is, is sharps win over the long run and squares don't. And whether they are kind of square or sharp, and if, if sharps do win in the long run, they still probably hold some, some common misconceptions or they might fall foul of, of some of the mistakes that bettors tend to make. So what are those, what would you kind of suggest people guard against or one kind of message to give out there to people listening? So this is an area where I think that the, the canon of pinnacle betting resources does a great job of, of, of really describing. The article on the green lumber fallacy, the article on cognitive biases is another great one. So there's really not much I can say um, to supplement you've already got there. I, I think that the biggest challenge for bettors, especially amateur bettors, is that the human brain has not evolved to make complex decisions in the face of uncertain outcomes. So we have evolved mental shortcuts or cognitive biases that can very often mislead us or steer us wrong when we're trying to do something like estimate the probability that a given team will win a, a given sporting event. It's just not, not how our brains are wired. So the first step is to train yourself to recognize where your reptile brain might be steering you wrong. And then from that, you can start to build more data-driven methods, um, obviously influenced by domain knowledge, uh, like we talked about earlier. But the, the biggest thing that beginners can do is learn to recognize when those cognitive biases are popping up in their brain, because they will never stop popping up. They pop up in mine all the time. You can't turn them off. The best you can do is train yourself to recognize them. Yeah, it seems that there's there's kind of so much focus nowadays on, on data and statistics that psychology, I guess, is almost an afterthought. So I guess I kind of... Uh, replicate that message and, and confirmation bias hindsight bias any kind of cognitive bias out there is is something pick up on it address it as you said no control but awareness is the key i guess yeah i was fortunate enough to to do a lot of my studying um both on the actuarial side and in the betting side at a, at a point in time where behavioral economics and and uh you know irrationality and uh, prospect theory, all these things were, were really kind of in vogue, uh, let's say, five to ten years ago when I was really starting to study these things. So they, they've really um, helped to inform my outlook on, on things like this and probably yours as well as a, as a bookmaker. And you can tell from, from the articles you guys have published on it. I think it's a very, very important uh, skill, not just for betters. I mean, betting is an obvious application of it. 
but we all make decisions under uncertainty every day of our lives. So even to take ourselves outside of both the actuarial space and the betting space, one of the best things anybody can do to help them make better decisions in all facets of life is to study and read about our own cognitive biases, why they happen, and uh, and how to learn from them and how to avoid making mistakes. Well, it's a, I mean, it's an intriguing kind of subject, man. I'm sure we could could turn that into a podcast on its own, and I don't want to kind of put any more targets on your back. So, unfortunately, I think we'll have to we'll have to call it a day there. I mean, it's it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Matt. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it. So, so thank you very much for coming on. All right, thanks a lot, Ben. Have a good day. And Matt is on Twitter with the rather fitting handle at plus EV analytics. And as always, if you want to learn more about betting, visit pinnacle.com forward slash betting resources and follow at Pinnacle Sports on Twitter. Thanks for listening and bye for now.